Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Mark 12, 28 through 34, once again, God's holy and inspired word. Mark 12, beginning in verse 28, God's word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. As far as the reading of God's word, may him bless it to us. Let us pray. So there's a lot of things in life that belong to the category of good, but not great. You paid $30 for a dish at a restaurant, and it was good, but not great. So is that photo you took, the way the car drives, and the report you turned in. All good, but not great. And yet, we are often uncomfortable or discontent with this category. We want great, so good is not good enough. And so to appease ourselves, we either exaggerate or we diminish. You spent over $200 for a pair of shoes that turned out decent. But to justify your expense, you tell everyone that they are excellent, superb, the best. The service was fine, not great, but you leave a scathing review about how poor and terrible it was. We can't leave good well enough alone. Sometimes we sanctify the good to be super special holy, and others we denigrate the good as a wretched, sinful, and profane thing. And we do this plenty in theology. God gave us good secular vocations, but we color them as holy kingdom work. The Lord blesses us with common graces, food and drink, marriage and leisure, but we demonize them as evils not to be touched or taste. What God is called good, we tend to redefine as perfect or profane. And so our Lord cautions us against this to leave the good as it is so that we do not miss what is truly great. So everyone and their mother has been lining up to take a swing at Jesus. On this one day in the temple, it's been like a dodgeball game, 50 against one. And one by one, our Lord has sidestepped every fastball and took out each of his challengers. But the floor isn't clear quite yet. Another guy approaches the baseline for a face-off. Though there's something different about this fella. He is part of a team, He, as he belongs to the scribes. But he's not a team player. That is, he doesn't come with a posse. He's not an official representative of the scribes. 
nor is a secret agent sent out to do their dirty work. Rather, he comes on his own. He's not a stereotype, a cliche, or a stock figure, but he's a concrete, particular individual. And as a unique person, he has his own opinion. Indeed, his mind varies from the group think that we have been witnessing. For this Mr. Scribe has been very, uh, been a very keen fly on the wall this whole time. He had a front row seat for each of the showdowns, and he came to the conclusion that Jesus answered them all well. He was impressed by Jesus' teaching, his fielding of questions, and him giving it back. Jesus exposed, he condemned, and he foiled the guy's teammates. But this guy is thinking, well done. Cheerio, mate. There's certainly, this certainly diverges then from our expectations. We anticipated another foe, but is this guy a friendly? Is this guy the lone lamb in this herd of goats? It's starting to look that way. And then he pops his question at Jesus. He, too, has a curiosity that needs scratching. But Mark gives us no heads up that this is a test, a trap, or a scheme. Thus he posits his query. What is the first commandment of them all? And by first, he means which commandment is most important, with the greatest priority and the most foundational. The first commandment is the most integral one upon which all the others rest and flow from. The first stands at the head of the line, and all the other commandments grow out of it. Now, from what we know, this question was part of an ongoing scholarly debate. About this time, or maybe slightly before, the rabbis had numbered the commandments of the law at 613 which consisted of 365 negative prohibitions and 248 positive injunctions. And out of this number, number counting arose the question of which was the first, foundational and primary for all the others. Every law had to be obeyed, but which had the priority? Hence, this question is rather academic. It isn't a loaded question, and it can't really get you into trouble. The tone here seems to be one of honest curiosity. Sure, as a scribal professor, he is weighing our Lord's knowledge and competency. He wants to know how smart this Jesus really is. But the question is not hostile or volatile. It isn't like the tax question where everybody had a dogmatic opinion. And the honest questioner is borne out by Jesus' response. Namely, he gives a straightforward answer. Jesus doesn't correct the question. He doesn't answer the question that should have been asked, nor does he chide the the guy's poor piety or bad theology. This is one of the more frank answers Jesus gives in this entire gospel. He says the first commandment is, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now for us, we who are schooled in the two great commandments, Jesus does something a bit different. Mark includes a line that we do not find in Matthew, Luke, or Paul. 
The first uh, love command is quoted from Deuteronomy 6.5. But Jesus here includes verse 4, which is famously known as the Shema. This is the faith confession of God's people that our Lord is our God and that the Lord is one. Now, one here can have some different shades of meaning, but the main force of oneness is the one and only God. There is no other God besides the Lord. This is the profession of monotheism, that all the gods of the nations are idols and that there's one God and creator of the entire universe, and this God is Yahweh. And by including this profession of faith, Jesus grounds our duty to love in faith. Knowing the Lord and believing in him as our God, it is from this that our call to love flows. This means we cannot uh, properly or fully love God without knowing him and believing in him. Jesus placards theology first and then sets forth obedience. Orthodoxy precedes orthopraxy. Or in the words of Paul, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Or from Hebrews, without faith is impossible to please God. And so Jesus aims our faith at our one and true God, the Lord. And with this cornerstone laid, then he proceeds to quote the law of loving our God. Now for us Reformed folk, the priority of loving God is apple pie to our Christian faith. Though it is always good to take a moment for remembrance, to pause and, and remind ourselves of some of the depths of this first of all the commandments. And this first law of love has two ways you can read it. You can read it as a whole or in its parts. Like a casserole, you can enjoy it in one big bite, or you can pull it apart and savor each of its various ingredients. And as a whole, what stands out is the drumbeat of all. All heart, all soul, all mind, all strength. The one Lord gets all of our love from all of us. Simply put, this is an idiom for total and exclusive devotion and fealty. Our whole selves are given in affection and loyalty to the Lord. There is no part, no speck, no cell of us, body or soul, that we don't love the Lord with. This is the rhetoric of hyperbole that is completely literal. We love the Lord with all. And in one sense, this is sufficient. We don't have to go any further than this. We love with all. This is so profound and rich, enough said. Like a superb metaphor or a great joke, to explain it can ruin it. However, we can dissect it. We can put each of its limbs under a microscope. And since we're lazy and forgetful, since we can ignore the beauty of all, it's helpful to take it apart. Moreover, from its original context in Deuteronomy, this command is much more concrete than we typically treat it. First, heart in Hebrew refers to your mind, all your thoughts 
and mental capabilities. Now, heart also included your will and desires. So loving the Lord with all your heart is loving God sincerely and simply with all your thoughts and skills. Soul, on the other hand, refers to your life, particularly your willingness to give your life for God. If the Lord calls us to battle or to martyrdom, you will happily lay down your life for him. This is loving with your soul, your life. Then there is strength, which in Hebrew refers to your energy and your resources, your money. To love the Lord with all your strength is giving you all that you own, all your possessions, and all your time to serve him. To love with all is your thoughts and desires, to die for him, and to give him all your time and money. This is very concrete. It includes emotions and affections, sincerity, but also very practical life stuff, too. And this is helpful as we are prone to make love purely emotional. And yet this reminds us that we can love God by our actions, even when our feelings aren't feeling so loving. Though you'll notice that we skipped here mind. This is an interesting one, for mind is not found in the Hebrew of Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy has three, heart, soul, and strength, but Jesus cites four, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what's the difference? Well, most likely mind is added for the Greek culture in which the New Testament saints lived. In Hebrew, heart was primarily mind, your rational faculty. But in Greek, heart was more so your affections and emotions. So our Lord, or Mark, adds mind to clarify that our rationality is to love God by taking every thought captive for him. Either way, there's no difference or disagreement between the three or the four. And this is the first great command, as a whole and in its parts. And as you can see, all the other laws flow from it. Offerings, Sabbath, worship, and so on, these are just specifics on how to love God specifically. Our Lord, though, goes beyond the scribe's question. He asks for the first commandment, and Jesus hands him the first and the second. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus cites this law from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Now, this golden rule is familiar territory for us. But there is a depth here that we often overlook. And this richness comes out of what at first seems like a limitation, an imperfection. To love the other as yourself makes self-love the yardstick. Self-love, though, is hardly a reliable measurement. For one, we do not always love ourselves. We can be hateful and suicidal towards ourselves. And self-hate can be expressed as cruelty to others. Second, in many ways, we love ourselves quite differently. Your self-love might want to be left alone, but the other person wants to be loved by getting a phone call or hanging out. At times, if we love others the way we want to be loved, we don't love them very well. 
self-love as a standard seems too me-focused, too inward-looking, too mere-gazing. And yet it's precisely the selfishness of self-love that makes it so useful and powerful. For self-love puts ourselves first, but then to love as ourselves makes the other equal to us. It focuses our love outside of us by the same intensity by which it looks inside of us. It makes us dote on others as we would dote on ourselves. The second great commandment, then, elevates the other person. It raises the honor of the image of God in other people by putting them on the same plane as ourselves. This is powerful. Love, respect, and treat others as you do yourself. This is a high standard from which flows all the other commandments concerning property, life, sex, truth-telling, and social relationships. As Paul says, any other commandment is summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. This is our Lord's straightforward and crispy clean answer. There's no other commandment greater than these two. The first commandment has the priority, the second is derivative, but the pair makes up the greatest commandments. Thus our Lord proves himself to be a scribe among scribes. His credentials and skills as a Bible interpreter and as a law experts, our expert is off the charts. And sure enough, this scribe gives an amen to our Lord's answer. He acts the greater and assessor of Jesus. He says, you're right. You've spoken according to the truth. He even repeats what Jesus said back to him. Instead of disagreeing with Jesus or using his answer against him, the scribe applauds our Lord. He validates our Lord's teaching and approves of his authority. This is good. This scribe is not like the others. Though to take the stand as Jesus greater, to position yourself as the teacher, makes Jesus the student. This scribes acts like the professional towards Jesus as the amateur, the mentor to the mentee. This needs work. And yet he does add another fine scriptural truth to his approval of our Lord. He says, these great commandments are more important than offering and sacrifice. Now he pulls this line from 1 Samuel 15 and Hosea 6. Now this does not mean that sacrifice was not necessary or unimportant. Rather, it highlights how positive obedience and love has the priority. This truth corrects a pagan or mechanical approach to sacrifice, where you can live however you want to, as long as you give the gods a pigeon every once in a while. Pay God with blood and incense and then live however you want to. But no, this is completely wrong-headed and wicked. Love and devotion to the Lord expressed in obedience, this is primary. A sacrifice is only acceptable when it's brought in love. An offering given in the absence of loyalty is worthless. Or to put it another way, active obedience is more important than passive obedience. 
passive obedience is built on the foundation of active obedience. Well, this is the scribe's good approval of Jesus and his fine understanding of the Old Testament and its law. And our Lord does not fail to to react well uh, to this well-done performance and piety to the scribe. Note he recognizes the scribe answered wisely or accurately. Jesus now gives his approval to show who the true teacher is and who the student is in this encounter. The professional and master is not the scribe with his degrees, but is Jesus as the Christ and Son of God. And so our Lord issues a final grade for this guy. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. To be not far from the kingdom is to be close to, but not inside. It's an almost, but not quite. This is good, but not great. So close. This near miss, though, makes us curious. What is he missing? What does he need to bridge the gap from not far to being inside? If he's close, then the guy is standing at the gate. What does it take to fling the door open for him to enter the kingdom of God? Well, our Lord addressed entering the kingdom back in chapter 10. And there he said we can only enter the kingdom by receiving the kingdom as a child. Entrance comes by being a little baby. Indeed, it is impossible for the rich man or any human to enter the kingdom, but what is impossible for humans is possible for God. And this reception as a child pointed to what? To the gospel. It was the confession that we cannot save ourselves in the least, and so we cast ourselves on the grace of God. So what is the scribe missing? He got the law correct, but he lacks the gospel. The law tells you what God demands. It reveals the requirements of justice for eternal life in the kingdom. But as sinners, the law's demands expose us as failures. The good law keeps the door of the kingdom locked. The law bars the gate by saying only the righteous may pass, and you are not. The law brings us close and then slays us as sinners. This is why the scribe is not far from the kingdom. But where is the gospel for him in this setting? It's standing right before him in the person of Jesus. He rightly sees the law, but as of yet, he cannot recognize Jesus as the Christ. This is why Jesus cited the Shema, the confession of faith that the Lord is God and the Lord is one. And Jesus is that Lord, one with the Father. The scribe cannot yet see Jesus is any more than a teacher, and an amateur one at that. What he needs is the faith to see Jesus as Lord, who alone can bring him into the kingdom as a sinner. In this way, the scribe sees the good law as great, when in reality, only the gospel is great. 
He needs to see the limitations of the law for him as a sinner and then cast himself upon the greatness of Christ and his gospel. And so it is for us. Our faith must keep straight that the law is good, but it's not great. It must trust and delight in the truth that greatness is found only in Christ and his gospel. For the law only tells us about our love for God, but the gospel speaks of God's love for us, which came first in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Like the scribe here, if we wrongly redefine the law as great, we will miss the true greatness of Jesus. We will come close to the kingdom, but fail to enter it. For entrance into the kingdom comes not by our love, but by Christ's love for us. The door opens not for our obedience, as we have none, but it does burst open for the righteousness of Christ granted to us through faith. We go from being near to being inside as Jesus carries us lovingly as his children. Therefore, the law is good, but the gospel is great. And we should never confuse, switch, or muddle this distinction. Let us know the two laws of love. May they be a light unto our path. But may we never forget that faith comes first. As it unites us to Christ, to his righteousness, and to his spirit. Through faith and by grace, Christ ushers us into his domain of salvation, into his family of God. Christ loved us first with his all, so that in his love, now we are free and able to love him with our all and to love each other as ourself. As grace works in us to make our love pleasing in his sight. Amen. Let us